Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. And welcome once again back to the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and I am, of course, joined by my friend and future nominee for the world's greatest co-host, Tom Dorian. Wow, thank you. How are you doing, Tom? I'm great. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. You look uh, great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Tom, this is going to be a wild ride today. I can't wait. Uh, we've got a truly exciting topic. In fact, I hope you've noticed that we've installed seatbelts in the luxurious corner booth. Well, you didn't notice. I already got mine buckled in. Good. And it's good that you're going to be buckled in because we've got a great and exciting topic. Might want to ask our listeners to uh, buckle in as well. That's right. But before they do, they need to get their Bibles because we are definitely going to need some Bibles with us today. That's right. Um, And we're discussing the book of Revelation, in fact, uh, and the Catholic understanding of apocalyptic literature. Uh, What does the church teach about the apocalypse? The Antichrist, Armageddon, that's something we need to stay tuned for, right? Absolutely. So to help us along in our discussion today, we're joined by a true biblical scholar, a priest for the Diocese of Memphis, Father William Parham. Father Parham, welcome to the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Well, thank you very much, and it's really comfortable here. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, speaking of that, what kind of coffee or drink would you like to have today? Well, I better make it a decaffeinated. <laughs> you get a little wound up. I'm getting the, a little wound up, so we'll make get, a decaf. Uh, we'll get Sarah right on that. Thank you. You want some fries to go with that, Father? <laughs> Because I know you look like you're hungry, too. I am a little bit hungry, by the way. So we get some French fries and a latte. Fries and decaf coffee. I miss breakfast, so I'm coming in at this time. Well, we are so happy to have you here. Uh, In fact, what we'd love to do is we'd love to get started. And basically, uh, we've got to dispel a lot of, we'll call it misinterpretation, uh, just some different ideas out there about what the apocalypse is and what does the Catholic Church teach about the apocalypse and apocalyptic literature. Oh, this is going to be exciting today. (laughs) Right. Let me start with something. I'm going to tell you a story. I first started into the book of Revelation, which is known as also the Apocalypse of John. Now, that word apocalypse is a Greek word, and it means unveiling. It's like pull back the veil. Let's take a look here. And the book has caused many people to be frightened. It seems like it uses words and figures that... Many people try to understand, and it's sometimes impossible. Some people have had some of the most frightening messages of their lives about the book of Revelation. And plus, we've gotten some of the best movies, though, out of the book of Revelation. Right, and imagine some horror movies out of the book of Revelation. Yeah. Let me tell you what the book of Revelation did for me and my faith. The book of Revelation, when I started studying it so I could answer the questions that people had, it opened up to me a whole new world in Scripture itself. Because of my work in the book of Revelation, I came to understand and more deeply appreciate the Old Testament. And for me, the book of Revelation has opened up for me a genuine, beautiful understanding of the meaning of the difference that Jesus Christ has made because he truly is the Son of God. I do not find the book of Revelation frightening, mysterious, in the sense of being strange. I received, and it's given to me, a beautiful and deep appreciation of my faith in Jesus Christ. 
Well, obviously, I think a lot of folks uh, would agree that it's certainly a divinely inspired book. I mean, because it's there in our Bible. Protestants and Catholics alike share uh, this view, this inspired view of the book of Revelation. But with it comes warning, though, does it not, uh, in terms of interpreting, in terms of reading and understanding? Oh, yes, because the book of Revelation, unfortunately, is perhaps the most misunderstood, misrepresented uh, book that is in the New Testament. Well, Father, has it always been this way? What did the early church think of Revelation? Like, what about the 3rd and 4th century Christians? I'll tell you something interesting. The reason why the book of Revelation is in the Bible is because of the Church of Rome. A lot of people don't realize this in just terms of the history. And by the 3rd century, there were some churches that did not want to read the book of Revelation, or they made copies of the New Testament and kind of didn't want to put it in. Is that because of all of the imagery and the, the numbers? Uh, possibly so, and because they, they figured it was so much misrepresentation, uh, it, it was causing too much of a problem. But it was the Church of Rome that insisted, wait a minute, all everybody, all the churches, the book of Revelation is in. We may have trouble understanding it, but that's our problem, not God's problem. Now, was that resolved at one of the councils? The canon of Scripture as we have it for the New Testament, mm-hmm. that happened in several synods uh, anywhere between from the, after the Council of Nicaea until about the year 391. Right, but then it was also formally ratified in ecumenical council correct. On, on like three or four occasions after that. Three or four occasions, correct. Yes. So that everybody, you've got the book of Revelation, you can't leave it out. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a difficult reality for a long time. So it's not just peculiar to our particular age. Well, let's talk about how the book of Revelation is written and what it appears to say, what it really says. Uh, And this comes down to our understanding of apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. You know, is this something that you can read right alongside the letters of St. Paul and the gospel uh, testimonies of Christ? Can you Can you read them together in the same form and fashion, or do you have to sort of parse it out in a different way? I would say you can read them along with the the letters of Paul easily, but the point is it's a whole different mindset. It's language. It's style. The symbols in the book of Revelation are coming to you right out of the Old Testament, and that's where apocalyptic literature comes from. One of the most famous examples is, of course, the book of Daniel where Daniel has a vision of the 70 weeks of years. Because what's going on? It's about the struggle of the believer in a world of hostility to show that the Lord himself, the Lord, is ultimately victorious. Now, the book of Revelation is broken up into different sections, is it not? I mean, it's not one continuous apocalyptic vision from John. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation, 1, 2, and 3, they read like the regular letters of John. They're very simple to read. But it's when you start with chapter 4. It's a different world altogether. And here's the reason why. The book of Revelation, from chapters 4 to 20, you're dealing with a symbolism that would only make sense to one type of person. And to what type of person would that be? A Levitical priest at the time of Jesus. Or before. Now, how do you arrive at that? Because all those symbols that people see, and of course the most famous one being the 666, and all of those symbols in there, they're right out of the Old Testament. For us here in 2008, 
it's very difficult for us to read some of this and try to make sense of it. But if you were coming out of the priesthood or familiar with the temple at the time of Jesus, the symbols would make perfect sense. And remember, in Acts the Apostles, it'll tell you, and there were many priests who were baptized that day. And so a lot of those symbols that are strange to us, well, they were very accessible to the people of that time. So you've got a time difference between us. We're starting to see this now from a Catholic perspective and understanding what the church has always taught about the book of Revelation, its, its place in Scripture, and its purpose for us. Can you give us some examples, maybe just off the top of your head, in terms of like where in the book of Revelation we start to see some of the, this imagery that you're saying that would be something that would just turn the light bulb on for a Levitical priest? All right. When you start with chapter 4, there are 24 elders, it says. All right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. You see, at the time of Jesus, time of John the Baptist, and even before, 24 priests served the temple. And it served for a two-week period. You notice they are around the throne of God. And then it says they threw their crowns before. Ah, well, by the way, that's a symbol coming from the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles, the dwelling place of God. And so that would be an example. Uh, it shows the bowls, you know, the bowls of wrath. If you look at the Ark of Titus in Rome, it'll show the Romans taking back the treasure of the Temple of Jerusalem. It will show the altar of incense. It'll show two trumpets lashed to it and a bowl. Those bowls were used for blessing, for anointing, sacrifices brought to the temple oil and wine. But in the book of Revelation, what happens is that those bowls begin to do the opposite of what they did in the temple. Now the bowls bring not blessing, but condemnation, correct? There's a big difference. Basically, what you're dealing with is that the liturgy and the, the, the foundation of the symbols in the book of Revelation is coming out of the liturgy in the temple at the time of Jesus. But here's the problem. Our Christian ancestors would have seen that, right? Peter, John, Andrew, but not us. That's why I talk about the difference in time. We have the things we don't see anymore. That's why it's difficult to interpret the symbols for us. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, obviously, we're going to have some more discussion on this. We've got a lot, a lot more to do uh, on trying to understand the Catholic viewpoint as far as the apocalypse and apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation in particular. Uh, and we'll continue with uh, Father Param about this exciting topic and return from a short break. But first, I do want to remind you uh, about our website at www.thecatholiccafe.com where you can find a wealth of information including MP3s of this and other shows, podcasting opportunities, and lots of links to other great Catholic resources on the web. And also, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I want you to send me an email at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. So please do not turn that dial because we've got more when we come back. We'll be right back. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Jean-Marie Vianney was born the son of a poor farmer in Dardilly, France in 1786. 
He had little education as a child, but had an ardent love for the Catholic faith. He was known to teach many other children their prayers and catechism. St. John Vianney received the call to the priesthood early in life, but his lack of formal education proved an obstacle for him. He was not a good student, and his Latin was terrible. In fact, he failed his final exams. It seemed he would not become a priest after all. However, God had other plans. His love for God and Christ's church was very apparent to those who knew him at seminary, so an appeal was made on his behalf to the Vicar General of France. The Vicar General asked simply, Is he pious? The answer was undoubtedly yes. Then ordain him, decided the Vicar General. The grace of God will do the rest. St. John Vianney was ordained in 1815. In order to limit any potential negative effect, he was assigned to a remote French hamlet called Ars with only 40 households. But, again, divine providence would not be outdone. God granted St. John an incredible gift. He made St. John Vianney a visionary, not only of some future events, but he had the unique gift of seeing into the hearts of the penitent. St. John Vianney's advice in the confessional was straightforward and easy to understand. He liked to invoke images that came from ordinary daily life to help the penitents. In fact, there are many stories that even the hardest of hearts were softened and sinners were converted at his mere word. It wasn't long before word got out that true miracles of conversion and healing were taking place in this tiny French village. Soon thousands upon thousands of penitents came to have the curé of ours, as he was called, hear their confessions. St. John Vianney spent hours and hours in the cramped confessional, sometimes as many as 18 hours in a day, and he allowed himself only a few hours of sleep at night. And even during the night, his rest was interrupted. His gift of vision was coupled with recurring torment from wrestling with the devil. And even though St. John was said to be a frail man, he was certainly a man of great impact and worth to the church. St. John Vianney, the curé of ours, died on August 4th in 1859. He is the patron saint of priests and confessors. I'm Vestra Zimski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff here with Tom Dorian. Tom, if you're like me, you're, uh, you're glad we've got a church that is here to protect and pass on the truth as revealed by God. And, of course, we're also happy to have a person like Father Param here to help us understand better what the church uh, teaches. Absolutely. I am happy. I am, I am happy that I am like you. And like I said, we've still got Father William Parham here, and he's got us riveted to our seats. And, of course, the seat belts actually help. They're buckled. Hold us in place. So, Father Parham, let's pick up where we left off. All right. I'm ready to go. There's a real transition in the book of Revelation. And if you can get this transition, as I said, a new world will be opened to you about the significance of the meaning of Jesus Christ. Because if the book of Revelation is called Revelation, the big question is, well, what does the book of Revelation reveal? And so many people have let themselves be captivated as if this is a prediction of things in the future. And here's an example, and it's very sad. 
I've seen people sit there and talk about the book of Revelation, then make comparisons with the writings of Nostradamus. Uh, you know, the book of Revelation is not forecasting and future telling uh, and done in this strange way that we have to figure out. Well, There's obviously, something powerful going on and we have to reaccess it. And there are a lot of ministers who have built entire ministries on this uh, uh you know, forecasting instead of going to the school of meteorology or whatever, so they can learn to be weather forecasters. They went to their particular brand of theology and started forecasting the future of uh, of, of the earth and and its demise and God's return, etc. And my position is how the Book of Revelation reveals to us the wonder of Jesus Christ and the meaning of new covenant. I want to give you just give you an example, and if you've got your Bible with you. Get ready to open up, and if you're not at the book of Revelation already, open up to the book of Revelation. Tom, that's at the end of your Bible. <laughs> now, that was, that was a bad joke. That I was, was going to say, shame on you. That's right, shame on me. Continue, <laughs> Father, I'm sorry. In the book of Revelation, there are 404 verses. Now, think for a minute. Out of those 404 verses, there are actually 518 verbal references that are from the Old Testament. And 88 of those references are from the book of Daniel. So 518 references to the Old Testament, many coming from Daniel. That's obviously a tremendous focus on the Old Testament. So how does Jesus in the New Testament church fit into the book of Revelation? The only time you hear anything about the New Testament, like remember I said Jesus Christ is in the first three chapters? Mm -hmm. But when chapter 4 starts... It's a different world, isn't it? In the last two chapters, there are 30 allusions to the New Testament. So we have a tremendous focus on the old, chapters 4 through 19, being bookended by the new, chapters 1 through 3 and 20 and 21. Now, this ought to be able to tell you something. That's why I said the book of Revelation brings you into some understanding of the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to tell you what the book of Revelation is bringing to our lives. If you've got your Bible with you, open up to chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. Put a bookmark there, and let's see what you think. What if today, by the mercy of God, you were going to be given a vision of heaven? Now, think, what do you expect to see? Well, if you are a Christian, you have some different things you expect to see. You expect to see the risen Jesus Christ, correct? Absolutely. You expect to have the experience of the Trinity, That's correct? right, certainly. There are no doubt the host of saints, no doubt even your, your relatives, those mm-hmm. who have gone before you that are in heaven. Yes. When you expect to see them, the, the saved? Absolutely. Now look at the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 19. Let's read that. Then God's temple in heaven was opened And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now this is amazing. He has a vision of heaven that would be typical of what you would have expected from an Old Testament prophet. Not, for example, in Acts the Apostle, St. Stephen... He has a vision of heaven, correct, before he dies? That's right, Acts seven fifty six. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen has what we'll call a New Testament vision of heaven, unlike John. He doesn't see 
heaven the way Stephen did, this is exactly the way an Old Testament prophet would have seen it. Now, here is the real interesting thing. As I said, what does the book of Revelation reveal? Now when you go to chapter 21, there's a different vision. Suddenly, the vision he has of heaven changes. I'm going to repeat that because it's critical to being able to read the book of Revelation and now begin to receive what I call its comfort and its security of what it's trying to tell us. He has a vision of heaven, but the vision he has of heaven is a different type of heaven. It's not like the visions he had before. And so as an example, chapter 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. This is the new Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city had no need of sun or moon. And the reason? Because the glory of God gave it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, you've got to ask yourself a question. When is heaven going to change? When is heaven going to change? Is it next week, next year, or has it already changed? You see what I'm talking about? How many people want to look at the book of Revelation as if it's trying to predict something for the future? But wait a minute. It's revealing what? Jesus Christ. From the Last Supper to his cross and his resurrection, heaven has changed. And with it, notice how it says, God and the Lamb are the throne. The Ark of the Covenant among the prophets was always referred to as God's throne on earth. Ark of the Covenant. Now notice in the Gospel of John, where Jesus cleanses the temple, and he says, in fact, uh, that reading... Uh, is from uh, is always on the feast of the dedication of the Cathedral Church of Saint John Lateran. That's the Cathedral Church, actually, the Holy Father in Rome. That's right. And it says, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I raise it up." And John says in his Gospel, he meant the temple that is his body. See, temple prophecy, the temple in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant. Those are prophecies about the Incarnation. They're prophecies about the Messiah. And on the Feast of Hanukkah, December 25th, Jesus says, chapter 10, starting on verse 23 of the Gospel of John, The Father and I are one. And he says it on the Temple Mount, on the Feast of the Dedication of the Temple. Isn't that fascinating? So here is a prophetic way of saying God and the Lamb are the temple. A prophetic way of communicating that idea that God the Father and Jesus Christ are one. So, and that's a beautiful message. It's actually very comforting uh, and totally different than what's out there in the world right now in terms of what 
you know, the book of Revelation is all about doing in terms of people thinking that this is some kind of, uh, this is really the Bible code and, the, and we're predicting the future and we're looking into a, um, you know, a crystal ball and, you know, the darkening of the skies and moon turning to blood and all these kinds of things. Or th- that's the stuff that people, you know, people slow down and stop and look and rubberneck at an accident because they're fascinated by this concept, you know, and it's a very sad thing, but it's part of our nature. And so I think people read into the book of Revelation a lot of things that aren't necessarily even there. And it has a powerful, beautiful thing to say about the future. He will return in glory. And I would further point out to you that in the book of Revelation, when you begin to look at A new gift, the gift of a new covenant. The book of Revelation is about the unrolling, the undoing of the old covenant. What replaces the temple? What replaces the Torah, the first five books? Remember St. Paul? You're justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by the works of, that the word for that in Hebrew is mitzvot, of the law, that's Torah, that's the first five books. By the way, some people forget, there are actually 613 commandments in the Old Testament, more than 10. And so, it's about unraveling an old covenant, and we have access to the new. So, I I think if anything, you know, to sum all this up, you know, we can safely say that the Apocalypse of St. John, the, the book of Revelation, is more often than not a misunderstood book. And that if only we would look at it through a, a more Catholic lens, we would certainly see hope and comfort. Well, Father Perrin, we truly appreciate your being here today. Uh, we've got so much to cover. In fact, I have to apologize to uh, all seven of our listeners uh, because we didn't get through everything we wanted to get through. There's so much uh going on here that we're going to actually do a second program uh, on this topic. In fact, uh, what we're going to try to do is get Father Param to come back and visit us next week here at the luxurious corner booth and, and see if we can't continue in this conversation so we totally understand that. And I promise that in our next show, we will discuss 666 because I know there's some folks out there that are waiting for the, you know, the spinning heads and the pea soup and the whole mm-hmm. nine yards to find out <laughs> what it is the church teaches about uh, this exciting topic. So, um, hopefully, Father Param, you can come back and visit us again next week. Can you do that? I surely will. Be happy to, as well, long as you can have breakfast for me. Well, we'll <laughs> have something to eat. <laughs> we will have something to eat. Um, what we will do, though, first is uh, as we as we close, uh, we always like to close in prayer. And so, Heavenly Father, from time immemorial, you've revealed your love for us. You offered life to Adam and Eve, our first parents. You espoused the Jews, your chosen people, and through the ministry of the church. You opened the gift of salvation to all peoples of the earth. Help us look beyond what the world would have us see and come to know you through your divine revelation. We ask you to grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stein, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.